Hi, I'm Paul Jay. Welcome to the analysis.news. Please don't forget there's a donate button uh, on the top of our webpage. Uh, so if you're watching on YouTube, you could maybe come on over to the analysis.news and hit donate. I think there's a link on YouTube there too. And if you're on YouTube, you can hit the subscribe button. That would be good. And most importantly, uh, you could share this with a few people. Uh, one of the most common comments we get is, why aren't more people watching this? Uh, I, it would help if, if there were more shares, although a lot of people have su suggested YouTube is uh, shadow banning us. And I, I think it's quite true, especially since they took down a few of our stories. And it was only after Matt Taibbi wrote an article calling them out for it uh, that they actually put, put the stories back up again and took the strike away from our channel, which would have led to banning the channel. But at any rate, uh, I, since that happened, our views have certainly gone down. So it would help if people would share and defy YouTube <laughs> attempt to marginalize us. Um, also, come on over to the website. You'll find uh, some of the stuff on the website is not on YouTube. And most importantly, at the website, you can uh, sign up for our email. All that said, uh, I'll be back in just a few seconds and we're going to talk about uh, the economy uh, and the Biden administration with Michael Hudson. In an interview I did a few months ago with Mark Blythe, he said Biden was caught between a black rock and a hard place. I thought that encapsulates pretty well where the Biden administration is with its economic policies. It's beholden to, intertwined with BlackRock and the financial sector, but must deliver some of the promises it made to workers to get elected. There's also a very real problem of digging out of the destruction of the COVID pandemic, which is far from over. Biden set some goals that could even be described loosely as progressive. But is he serious about delivering? And could he, even if he is? Now joining us is Michael Hudson. Michael is an economist, professor of economics at the University of Missouri, Kansas City. He's also a former Wall Street analyst, political consultant, commentator, and journalist. Thanks very much for joining me, Michael. Good to be back, Paul. So there's a lots of fights going on here uh, on many sides of this Biden uh, economic plan. The, supposed to be 3.5 trillion, and another one for 1.5 trillion, and the Republicans do predictably. What they would always do in this situation is try to stop a Democratic Party administration from accomplishing anything. Uh, Joe Manchin from West Virginia might as well be in the Republican Party, except I suppose it does give the Democrats uh, the chairs of important committees, assuming that does help in some ways. Um, and uh, they've got this kind of dual problem, as I described. You know, they have, you know, even one of the uh, senior BlackRock guys is now on Biden's financial team. Uh, clearly, the financial sector has enormous sway, although it's an interesting mood of the financial sector. They're not all that against some stimulus spending now, at least sections of it. Anyway, it's a complicated picture, all of which right now is leading to the legislation being stalled. So what's the big picture for you? And then get into the micro. Well, in a way, the big picture is in the tiny details. And the tiny details is in the pay-to-play politics, that uh, in order to uh, run for office and get elected, uh, you have to raise money. 
And if you have to raise money, what do you do? You go to the campaign donors. And what do you do? Well, the, the rule of thumb is uh, every dollar that a campaign donor pays, uh, they get a thousand uh, times uh, back. And uh, it, the problem with the, uh, uh, obviously with Biden's program right now, is uh, look at the people who've been able to raise the most money. Well, in uh, uh, West Virginia, since you mentioned uh, Mr. Manchin, I mean, here's a, a, a state with uh, the population of equal to Brooklyn, uh, basically, and Manchin's family uh, owns the coal mines. Uh, and he said, well, there's such a delicate balance between the uh, uh, two parties uh, that you really need my vote. And you're going to have to make me, representing the coal industry, write the climate change law. So America's climate change law put forth by Biden will be written by the coal industry, uh, along with the oil industry, which of course is uh, the other uh, set of major donors. Uh, and alongside of that, the other major contributor to the campaigns of Republicans and Democrats alike, but especially to cinema's campaign in uh, uh, Arizona and uh, Clyburn's campaign in uh, South Carolina is the pharmaceutical industry. So in order to uh, get the Democratic National Committee to designate you as a candidate, you have to outpoll all of your rivals and who can get the most money from the special corporate interests uh, that you are committed uh, to represent. So uh, what you have in the situation uh, in Congress and politics is very different from what you would have in law. If, uh, if this were a court case uh, to decide what policy to have, a judge, uh, if a, a judge owned uh, stock in uh, the uh, huge coal company, he would have to recuse himself from uh, writing that. But in, uh, in democratic politics, uh, the reason that uh, uh, Manchin wouldn't recuse himself and the recipients of pharmaceutical money won't recuse themselves is that's why they get the money. Well, the, the, thing, the thing is, if, if senators had to recuse themselves because of conflict of interest, you might have only three or four senators left to vote on anything. That's the problem right there. So the question is, uh, do, do we live in a democracy or do we live in an oligarchy? Uh, we live in an oligarchy where it's sort of uh, uh, pay to play and uh, the people, the largest campaign contributors get to designate who are going to write the laws in their own interests. So that's what's paralyzing uh, Biden's plan. So Biden, uh, the problem is if uh, you have politicians elected by who can raise the most money from the special interests, how on earth can they get voters to vote for them? Well, the job of a politician is to deliver a given segment of voters to the campaign contributors uh, so that they can win over other politicians who don't get his money from these campaign contributors because they wouldn't give them all of the special interest uh, favors that politicians are able to get them. So corruption, this used to be considered corruption, uh, but now it's uh, built into the system as part of the basic uh, system. And uh, that's not how uh, democracies are supposed to work. Okay. So, so hang on a sec. So Biden, let's assume Biden is serious about wanting to Past this 3.5 sure. trillion plan, he seems to be, and, and he's got obviously sections of the financial sector that think they'll make a lot of money out of it, and they're they're in support of it. Let's assume they actually do understand there is a climate crisis. And again, if you read the statements of Larry Fink from BlackRock and some of the other people in the financial sector, 
many of them do get there is an urgency. Now, whether they're willing to really do anything about it is quite another question. But at any rate, I think they do want to pass this. So in the reality of this situation, what can Biden do about Joe Manchin in, in West Virginia uh, to try to force him to go along with this? Why is, is there anything Biden can do? Well, first of all, you use the word urgency. Uh, urgency uh, for the financial sector and for the corporate America, urgency is the next three months. Uh, the climate uh, situation is not urgent. It won't be urgent for the next administration. It won't be urgent till, for the administration after that. Even if the if when the uh, water level goes up 20 feet, it'll never be urgent because the financial sector and corporate corporate managers live in the short run. They're they're only concerned with the next three months. And so uh, they they realize that yes, indeed, it's an urgent problem in 10 years or 20 years, and uh, it, it's going to make the earth absolutely awful, but we care about our uh, how much we're going to make in the next three months and the next year for our uh, earnings report, for our stocks, and that's what I'm paid to do. I'm paid to make uh, the stock go up in the next three months, or else I don't get as much of a bonus And at the end of the year. If I don't perform as well as uh, other managers, then I'm fired. So that's the whole problem, uh, short-termism and long-termism. Uh, so Biden's uh, program uh, it's, it's as if it's a, uh, a party platform, his uh, uh, $3.5 trillion uh, program that, remember, begun as a $6.5 trillion uh, program uh, and, and is way down. The party platform uh, isn't really what's achievable. So now you bring in Manchin. Well, I think Bernie Sanders made a very good point the other day. He said, well, look, what we have right now in the Senate is uh, 48 uh, senators in favor of it, two against it. When you have it 48 to do to two, you don't compromise 50-50. And yet that's what they want. They want 50-50. They, they want no, uh, no climate uh, controls. They don't even want to close the loophole on carried interest, which is the huge financial giveaway to Wall Street. And they don't even want uh, they, uh, the senators uh, who receive pharmaceutical funding won't even let the uh, the uh, Medicare uh, bargain over drug prices with the pharmaceutical companies. So obviously, uh, uh, there's no way in which uh, the corporate special interests are going to uh, ally themselves with the the Democratic voters. And uh, what can Biden say? All he can say is, well. Uh, we can go to the people and say, well, I'm sorry, we have these two senators. We don't have a big, uh, as big enough a majority uh, to win. But let's say he, get, uh, he gets an even bigger Senate majority. The question, then they'll, they'll get seven senators, uh, 10 senators playing the role of Biden. They, the Democratic Party has a whole slew of senators just waiting in line between Cinema uh, uh, and uh, Manchin uh, to block uh, really any kind of serious agenda that would serve the overall economy, help serve the, the world avoid uh, global warming, uh, but will not make money for the companies that are making money on the fact that they're polluting the atmosphere. Yeah, I, th I think I, th I agree with you. And I uh, let me say one of the things I think that proves you're right uh, is there is something Biden could do if he wants to weaken Manchin's hand 
Uh, and that's something various people have been talking about. Bob Poland has actually priced this out, which is a real just transition for fossil fuel workers, where you say to the coal miners of West Virginia, you won't lose a penny if we, not if, when we phase out coal, you can maintain your income until you retire. Even if you go to other jobs, we'll subsidize you. Uh, Poland priced this out. And for every fossil fuel worker in the United States, for, if you made that promise for three years, it's only $2 billion. So $4 billion for six years. I mean, it's not, you know, you could give them a decade of subsidies. It's not even the cost of one Ford-class aircraft carrier. The thing is, if you, if you do that, you're, I mean, you're actually saying you're serious about facing out fossil fuel and coal, which it doesn't seem they are. I think that would be very smart because then he could go to uh, West Virginia and say, look, here's a chance for you to maintain your uh, salaries in, in, a, in a time when all the coal employment is going down and down and West Virginia is less and less coal than it used uh, every year uh, than it used to be. Uh, and you have one person blocking money for, your, for you. And also he's blocking the family uh, uh, ch uh, child support uh, for you. Uh, are you going to vote for your interest or are you going to vote for someone else? Well, of course, uh, the uh, coal industry will give even more money to Manchin. And the question is, it, it, can uh, money always trump uh, a politician, uh, someone from uh, the squad actually going out and raising money? Well, here you have the Democratic National Committee that absolutely hates the squad, that is absolutely in the uh, tightly tight fist of the special interests. Uh, Biden has uh, made sure, uh, taken steps to make sure that there's no way in which his program can possibly be accepted. He's killed it at the beginning by appointing uh, special lobbyists in charge of the Democratic National Committee. So he said, look, I can uh, let me go to the people. I can have this wonderful program, but I've made sure that I've put the controllers in the Democratic National Committee so that nothing in my program will ever be done. Uh, that's, that's the trick uh, in, in this whole game. Yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, I don't think he wants to lose these programs. On the other hand, uh, I think he's not willing to do what it takes to win these programs. Right. Uh, which, like uh, the, uh, this idea of the transition for uh, fossil fuel workers, it would also weaken Republicans in various red states. And I'm not saying it's the only issue. Uh, you know, there's a lot of cultural, ideological things that are getting people to vote for Republicans and Trump. But it's a big issue if, you know, if, if you get real direct subsidies to fossil fuel workers. Uh, and and this, the problem is in the final analysis, uh, the Biden corporate Democrats really do believe in the fundamental status quo, even though they talk about this being a transformative moment. Well, when you say status quo, the status quo is really a dynamic. And the dynamic is moving, as you say, towards global warming. It's, it's polarizing. Uh, you mentioned the COVID crisis and the real estate problem and the fact that uh, uh, rent arrears and mortgage arrears are rising for many American homeowners. So the status quo means don't do anything to stop the polarizing direction in which the economy is going in. And uh, so to be a centrist uh, or to be a moderate is to go along with the immoderate uh, economy and a marketplace that is uh, shaped by the leading corporations and the banks and the lobbyists, not by uh, the voters. Now, doesn't wouldn't Biden know this? He's 
uh, worked in Washington for uh, is it 30, 50 years. Uh, he certainly must know that if he puts the uh, National Committee uh, uh, chairman uh, in place and says, get rid of the squad, that he's actually not in favor of the squad that's supporting his program. Uh, that he That's what politicians do. They make it appear as if they're trying to do the right thing while actually serving uh, uh, their interests. And I, I think I'm giving you the credit for what you're saying. Uh, I think Biden would love to actually be the transformative president that Obama never was. Maybe he's thinking, here I, I am, who everybody looked down as a great personage under Obama, but maybe I'm able with my program, this program would, would be transformative. This program would really set uh, the country on, a, uh, uh, on a, a more progressive direction. He would love to do that on the one hand. On the other hand, there's his personality that doesn't want to uh, shake up the existing power structure. And the power structure is antithetical to his program. And how is he going to solve that? I, I, actually, I actually think there's a section of the power structure that's for his program. I mean, the BlackRock guy, I forget his name, that's on the senior advisor in his economic team, is a former senior BlackRock guy. Um, there's a section of the financial sector that does want a kind of Keynesian moment here, at least for a while, because they assume they're going to make money out of the expansion that takes place. Uh, so it's, it's not like his hands are so completely tied. On the other hand, he he won't do what it takes to go to war with the right, you know, the I love how they call the moderate, the right wing section of the Republican Party, who, in fact, traditionally, Biden's always had one foot in himself. Mm -hmm. that, that being said, uh, th there's a moderating effect. Again, the word moderating. Uh, of these kinds of mansion types that serves the interest of the elites. But I, I think there's a problem here, too, which is I think there's a, a kind of an irrationality to capitalism. And it's at a very irrational, dysfunctional moment here. The system itself actually would benefit by this Biden plan. I mean, the capitalist system itself. It will give some benefit to ordinary people for a while, probably short term. But it's also better for ordinary people that, you know, you don't go back into austerity, which, you know, the Republicans would probably invoke because the Republicans hate this lack of labor discipline. They can't stand the idea. Oh, this this whole thing empowered workers to actually decide what kind of jobs they want. They may go starting on going into strikes again. Holy shit, we might see an increase in unionization. And the Republicans hate this moment. And of course, not just the Republicans. This is also probably giving some pause to sections, you know, the financial sector who actually really own most of the corporate world anyway. So I, I think they're really at, at a, what's the word, uh, betwixt and between about what to do here. Well, here's the tension. You use the word dysfunction. And in terms of the survival of the economic system, in terms of the economy avoiding austerity, yes, it's dysfunctional. But that's not irrational because the rationale, rationality of uh, the financial sector and the special interests is short term. So their rationality is what is dysfunctional. Their rationality of living in the short run and not caring about global warming because they'll be retired by then. Uh, and their rationality of saying, well, we're making money by uh, 
selling mono uh, our pharmaceuticals at monopoly prices. That's how we make money. Well, that's uh, rational for them, dysfunctional for the system. So this, this assumption that whatever the market produces is rational and functional is the bedrock of Western economies. And it's wrong. Uh, and the, the, it uh, negates the fact that you really need some uh, government power strong enough to override the special uh, interests. And uh, that takes a very strong uh, government, which is why the free market people have always opposed strong government and why their economic models don't give any acknowledgement for government investment in infrastructure that Biden wants or any government uh, activity that uh, is able to override that of the rentier class, the financial class, the property owning class and the corporate monopolists. That's the problem we have. So what should people do about it? I don't know what they can do about it because it may be that we're a failed failed economy and a failed, uh, uh, failed state. There's nothing that uh, people can do as long as uh, they're confronted with a dysfunctional system. Uh, this, this is exactly what happened in the Roman Empire. Uh, Aristotle said that uh, many uh, uh, countries had uh, nominal democratic constitutions, but in practice they were oligarchic. Well, in Rome, everybody could vote, but the votes of the they were Rome was divided the voting groups into uh, different uh, layers, and the top layer with only a few people, we can think of it as West Virginia, had as many votes as the whole next forty percent uh, of the population. The votes were weighted by money. Well, we don't weight the votes by money in America, but we weight the campaign con con contributions that determine who's going to be able to run to get the votes. Uh, in this country. So uh, given the fact that our political system is oligarchic, not democratic, that, uh, and uh, being oligarchic, uh, the special interests all uh, sort of come to a deal saying, well, uh, we in the oil industry don't make money from your pharmaceutical people uh, uh, getting a ripoff, uh, and you don't uh, get a benefit from our polluting the uh, atmosphere and uh, mining, but let's, let's agree, we're never going to disagree with each other's uh, special interests because we have one common interest, and you just said it, it's to prevent labor from increasing its wages to make sure that all of the increase in economic growth goes to the top 1%. That, so the deal there is, this is the kind of deal that Mexican government made uh, a century ago with the, uh, uh, the ruling party. The, uh, uh, they'll, they won't fight among themselves. They'll always make a common front against labor or the peasantry as it was in Mexico. And that's the situation we have here. I don't see how it can be changed without a change in the system. Uh, and of course, and uh, we haven't even mentioned the Supreme Court uh, and uh, all of the other uh, non-elective things. We haven't mentioned the, uh, uh, the Senate parliamentarian uh, that gets to uh, decide uh, what can be actually submitted uh, to, uh, to Congress. I mean, we have so many checks, not balances, but blockages uh, and uh, choke points. Uh, instead of checks and balances, we have uh, choke points uh, uh, that the uh, existing vested interests use to stop anything that they feel is against their short-term interests. I, th I think there's got to be a sort of step-by-step -step here uh, in terms of what needs to be done. Uh, and I do think there has 
we have to distinguish between the corporate Democrats, who I agree with how you have described them, but I still think that section of the elites, that section of finance, that section of capital, do want to maintain the formal democratic institutions that exist. Now, I don't consider that a real democracy, but it's better than the alternative because there is a section of capital uh, that's really almost metaphysical in their beliefs. Uh, and and you know, the way Steve Bannon uh, articulates this, uh, you know, his, Bannon is very close to Opus Dei in the right wing of the Catholic Church. He uh, works very closely with Christian nationalists. And I, I don't think it should be underestimated how much they believe their rhetoric. Uh, and, and, and many, many, many people, especially in the military, are willing to die for this vision of a, a essentially a Christian theocratic authoritarian America. So, you know, for, you know, step by step, we, we I think, have to, while we don't have illusions about corporate Democrats, uh, we also shouldn't have illusions about the danger of the far right. And I think some on the left are minimizing how serious the danger of that kind of fascism is in the United States. Because even if Wall Street thinks short term, uh, I don't think these right wingers are thinking short term. They're thinking longer term. And they actually are you've been working at this for decades. You know, you could say from Barry Goldwater and then Reagan, uh, you know, and then Trump, you know, Bush administration, you know, they've been actually trying to craft, carve out this kind of right wing authoritarian state, uh, even if there's contradictions between them, like the Cheneys are in contradiction with the, the Trumps and so on. But I think that's just a fight for leadership of the hard right, not a, a fundamental fight over authoritarianism. So, so I interviewed Adolf Reed recently, and he said, look, let's, you know, whatever you think about the Democrats, you got to hold your nose and get past 2022 and try to make sure the Republicans don't regain either the House or the Senate. And then there has to be a real fight over who's going to be the candidate in 2024. Does that make sense to you? Uh, it, it makes sense. Uh, but most of the uh, forecasts about uh, 2024 are that the Republicans, uh, no matter what happens, they're set to increase uh, their uh, their Senate control. And I think uh, one of the aims of Sinema and uh, uh, Manchin, who uh, they may simply change parties, go over to the Republicans, and uh, the Re Republicans will uh, uh, will be in control. And as you just pointed out, the Republican right is thinking structurally. It's not thinking marginally. It's it's been preparing this for a long time, and this is a basic structural change that'll come down like a hammer. You're absolutely right. I don't see any structural long-term uh, alternative being put forth by the Democrats. They're social Democrats, and they're trying to move marginally, and uh, so you, you have a marginal mover and a structural mover, and uh, uh, just in terms of physics, uh, uh, the structural uh, uh, revolutionists are probably going to win, and it's not going to be a very nice country, but I don't see the Democrats acting actively to stop it. That's the problem. The Democrats are, if anything, uh, have enough of their uh, special interest senators that are enablers of the Republican Party that uh, I don't see the progressive caucus uh, is getting enough power uh, to change things. So I think the progressive caucus realizes this, and I think they're absolutely right. 
uh, in their earlier statement, I don't know this week what they're saying, but they said, look, if, if we're going to have to only pass Republican bills, we're not going to do it. We're just going to, going to block it. Now they're saying, okay, we've got to get something. And that, that's what led uh, Bernie and the squad to say, well, wait a minute, do we have to give up uh, 90% of what we want just because of two senators? Well, and the answer of Biden was, ha, 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 you stupid twitch. It's not two senators. It's five senators. It's 10 senators. It's 15 senators. It, uh, no matter what, we have so many people behind mansion and cinema that we can just pull them out and they're going to block anything you're going to do. And uh, you can be sure that the DNC is going to fight against AOC and against the squad and trying to get uh, more uh, uh, special interest groups. And uh, they'll very na they'll naturally merge into this uh, Republican horror story that you've quite correctly described. Well, I hope you're wrong. <laughs> but what's that Gramsci quote about uh, opt uh, pessimism of the mind, optimism of the heart. Uh, th th there, there's got to be, I hope, uh, a movement, and I, I say step by step in the sense that it is going to have to be electoral and mass movement. Uh, there's two points of, of potential change here. I can't say I'm wildly optimistic. One is there has to be a real fight in the unions because I don't see uh, the ability to elect progressives in the House and the Senate without a revitalization of the union movement. You could see just the nurses and communication workers, how close they came to backing Sanders and winning the nomination of the Democratic Party. If you had more unions, even though unionization is small, there's nothing that compares to them in terms of financial resources and numbers of workers that are organized. On the other hand, I have a series of interviews coming out soon with Jane McAlevey. I mean, a lot of workers, you go ask them, they don't even know the name of the union they're in. The, 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 the unions are so, the leadership is so dormant. But a revitalization of the unions. And then number two, I think we need to try to identify some members of the elites who aren't sociopaths. And I believe there are some. I do believe sociopaths rise to the top in capitalism, especially in the financial sector. The short-term, nihilistic, what's good for me and my family, practically like a Tony Soprano mentality, uh, I think it's very dominant, but it's not the only. There are some people. I think we have to identify them. Uh, and, and there needs to be some kind of national way of organizing uh, you know, this kind of a movement, because right now the left and organizing is so siloed based on cities and then based on issues. Well, then you, you bring up uh, the other fight that's going on about the redistricting and the, uh, the voting rights law. And uh, again, you have the uh, leading Democrats opposing uh, any, any, uh, the, the voting rights law that uh, Biden uh, had uh, trotted out as saying this would be uh, the ideal. So even if you, or suppose you do organize the people in the way that you want, how are you going to get their votes counted uh, with all of the gerrymandering has just uh, gotten rid of uh, some of the uh, more progressive candidates. From what I've seen, if there was a real increase in the number of people that vote, you actually probably could overcome at least much of the gerrymandering. But you'd have to have a really massive increase. There'd have to be a real serious campaign 
to register poor people who, to a large extent, have gotten have given up on elections. Here's the problem: the Democratic uh, leaders, uh, local leaders of uh, uh, the states which are in charge of redistricting, are almost all Repu- actually Republicans. Look at the fight they had when they got rid of Dennis Kucinich's uh, 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 section. They they gerrymandered to get him out of Congress. They just uh, had another election in Cleveland that also uh, led to not the left-wing candidate being elected. Uh, you, you, you have the Democrats in, uh, who are in charge of the districting locally as well as uh, nationally uh, not favoring the groups that you want to favor uh, and that I want to favor. Uh, they're favoring, again, the special interests because that's where their money comes from uh, and that's where the, uh, the the Democratic Party's committee through the National Committee comes from. Now, as I understand it from what uh, 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 what's being told, uh, when AOC and the squad raise money, they have to give much of this to the Democratic Committee that's backing their uh, opponents uh, uh, in a lot of this. Uh, this is... I don't see why the squad and the and the progressive caucus doesn't uh, immediately fight fight against the party structure and say, look, we can get our we can get what we want. We can get this policy, this uh, Biden program, uh, the whole six and a half uh, billion that Biden says that he wa- he still wants. But we're going to have to change the uh, party's internal ad- administrative uh, structure and. Uh, uh, I don't see them uh, taking that uh, that step with the nitty gritty, and that's the nitty gritty step you have to take in order to get all of these other things because that's the choke point within the Democratic Party right now. Yeah, there were so, there were some reforms that the Sanders campaign won about the number of uh, superdelegates and some other things like that. I, I don't know how effectively that will really play out leading into twenty twenty four. Uh, but what do you, I know there's in the audience people saying, well, what about a third party? What's your view about that? The, the, if this were like Europe, uh, I wish we had a third party. But to have a third party, you would need a parliamentary system like in Europe. If we had a par, uh, right now, there's a duopoly between the Republicans, and the Democrats and a third party cannot simply can't get on the ticket because of all the technical laws that the Democrats and Republicans have put in place at the state level, the local level, and the national level. So there's no way, uh, Bernie Sanders thought about this for a decade, and he said he looked at it, and there was no way that he could see running, uh, uh, creating a third party that could even get onto the ballot, because the Democrats have blocked off the ballot access, and they've maintained the uh, uh, pay-to-play money in politics role that sort of prevents something from happening here. If we had the ability, uh, a parliamentary system like Europe, you'd have the Democratic Party falling to maybe 8% of the vote, like the Social Democratic Party and uh, parties in Europe. You'd have the Republican Party splitting with uh, only part of the vote. You would have a real uh, spectrum, a bell-shaped curve of parties like you have uh, in Europe. And that would give an opening for exactly the kind of program that you and I are advocating. But uh, we don't have that here, and it would take a political revolution, or at least a, it would take a new constitution to do it. The problems are now inherent in the constitution, as in, as are implemented by the Supreme Court justices who are in place and are going to be in place for quite a long time. So 
uh, that it, we have a constitutional problem, just like Rome had a constitutional problem, where uh, you couldn't have any reform by Julius Caesar or uh, the, uh, the other reformers. Uh, you, that's the problem we have today. We're, we're stuck and we're unable to act. And this is what is letting other countries uh, uh, pull ahead of us that don't have this paralysis problem that uh, America now has politically. Yeah, even Nader said that Sanders was right to run within the Democratic Party, that the, that it just really didn't work uh, other, otherwise. Uh, so I'm left with people have to fight the primary right-wing Democrats leading into 2022. Then they got to elect whoever the hell a Democrat is, shit or not, even though most of them are shit uh, in 2022, because I think the alternative of the, of the, the fascist overt fascization of the Republican Party. I mean, I wrote an article why people should vote for Biden back during the election. I said, vote for Biden without illusions. And I, I talked about the corporate Democrats are part of a longer term process of financialization and fascization of America. They're very much part of that. But there's a malignant cancer on that process. And that's the criminal Republican Party, not to say the Dems that don't have lots of their own criminals, uh, but the, it's a very malignant, particularized form of this cancer that leads to a very overt fascism. And, and, and people, I think, have to recognize, you know, living in the, in the heart of the empire, this is what it is. And, and so I think people have to primary Democrats, then vote for Democrats one way or the other, except even a mansion, I don't know. You, uh, I don't know how you vote for a mansion if you're in West Virginia, but I don't know what the the alternative might be worse. Uh, and then two, really, pr uh, who the hell is going to be the candidate in 2024? And a real another big fight for a progressive uh, for the Democratic Party, and not worry about you know don't split the party and facing another Trump. Well, the way you framed the question, and I think it's correct. Uh, will the uh, voters think, well, we've got to protect ourselves from another Donald Trump uh, type party? Or will they say, gee, we elected uh, the Democrats, uh, they control the, the presidency, Congress and the Senate, and they couldn't do anything. What's the point of voting? Let's just stay home and vote with our backsides. That's part of the problem. The second thing is, suppose that the Bernie Sanders was uh, uh, the nominee in 2024. What could he do? Uh, that he hasn't been able to do this time around. Bernie Sanders has been able, I mean, he's really been the voice of the program. Uh, uh, Biden's nominal program uh, is uh, very compatible with what Bernie Sanders uh, wants. And Bernie's made that uh, quite clear. The only thing that Biden has done that Sanders uh, would not have done was appoint uh, right-wing uh, Republicans, uh, uh, special interest lobbyists in charge of the nominating committee of the Democratic National Committee to make sure that uh, they're going to back only uh, uh, candidates that are Republicans running as Democrats, uh, as special interests uh, financed by uh, the special interests. And uh, that failure, that lock, uh, locking in of the corrupt political process uh, is what's really blocked, uh, what, uh, uh, what's blocking things. So even if you get Bernie, 
uh, you're going to have the mansions. You're going to have you're going to have the bulk of Democrats uh, say we're leaving the Democratic Party and joining uh, the Republicans because there's really only one party because that's the only party that's doing anything. And of course, it's the only party doing anything if they block everything the Democrats are doing. And then you have uh, Cinema saying, "I will not vote for anything the Republicans vote for," and the Republicans insist on voting and blocking uh, the Democrats. So I'm going to vote with the Democrats to block the. Uh, the with, uh, I'm going to vote with the Republicans to vote the Demo against the Democrats because that's being uh, bipartisan. I mean, that's the craziness. That we're yeah, in. No I, like I said, I'm not wildly optimistic. And, and even if you had a significant more number of progressives elected in the House and maybe a few more in the Senate, and you, even if you got a Sanders presidency, uh, that doesn't change the elites and the nature of the elites and their ability to wage war against any politicians who aren't on their agenda. Um, there would have to be a transformative moment in the yeah. mass movement. People have to get organized. Uh, and I hope people do watch the series I have coming with uh, Jane McAlevey about organizing in the unions. Uh, I mean, I, I don't know where this all ends up. You know, if you ask me to game theory, it, I, it doesn't come out well because that's the end of any climate program for the world. Yeah. Uh, you might as well give up on uh, any rational climate policy. Yep. Uh, so, we've got, you know, we've got to take our best shot. And unfortunately, a third party, even though, of course, I'd love to see a real progressive third party, uh, there's no way it's going to have any chance of any significance in the time frame we're talking about, which is 2024, or even if you're talking the window for dealing with climate, which is what, you know, less than a decade. So hopefully there'll be some breakthroughs in other parts of the world. Uh, but in the U.S., we better be realistic about what's what's possible and mitigating the fascization and, and mitigating the damage done by the corporate Democrats. Uh, we, I don't know. We got to take our best shot. What else can we do? Is there any way of getting a, corp a political corruption law in that you can't uh, vote uh, uh, for what your campaign contributors give you because that is corrupt in politics as it would be if you were a judge in the court system. Yeah, well, you know the answer to that, because the same people you're asking to vote for that law are the people doing it. So anyway, I, I, I don't want to leave this so completely pessimistic. Like people are going to say, OK, fine, it's all shit. And we know that. And, and so, you know, what I'm saying and I think other people are saying is get organized wherever you are, whatever organization you're in fight for policies that are both progressive in the short run in whatever level of organization you're in. Like if you're in a union, you know, fight for a better contract. But link that with a fight for real democracy, both in terms of politics and economics, and, and in terms of the political process, both, you know, you know at state levels and otherwise. Because uh, just, just sitting home and, and getting uh, angry and hearing us talk about how doomed everything is, uh, that's not, that's should hopefully only be something that helps motivate one to do more, uh, which means get into an organization and fight for that organization to take the, you know, take a progressive position on these things. Right. You don't want to be depressive. And even if it's uh, hopeless, uh, it'll make you feel better. <laughs> well, We'll see if it's hopeless. There have been transformative moments in human history when you, you figured it was all done 
And then, you know, things happened. Uh, you know, look at some of the places there have been revolutions. Uh, who would have thought such a thing was possible? What's transformed is the structure, not the individual within a structure. An you can't put your faith in princes. Uh, it's got to be uh, a, a structural change. And uh, only, the dem only the Republicans, as you point out, are planning these structural changes as they have for the legal system, you know, and the, the right-wing uh, uh, legal uh, groups they have and the law and economics group at Chicago. That, that's the whole problem. Uh, you do have to deal with structure. You sound like a Republican. <laughs> no, you sound like a socialist. Uh, so, so that's, you know, you earlier, you said Biden's only a social Democrat. He's not even, they're not even really social Democrats. Uh, I mean, an American social Democrat would have been an FDR and he was, he was willing to go to war. Yep. Uh, so it's, it's, yep. you know, are there any sections of the capitalist class left that for the sake even of capitalism, which is what FDR fought for? Are willing to go to war in a, in, in, as a social democratic alternative rather than what much of Europe, so, you know, chose, which was a fascism. And uh, right now it ain't looking great. But I, I don't think we should give up here because, uh, to quote Daniel Ellsberg, uh, you know, we got to act like the captain of the Titanic can still be persuaded uh, that he doesn't have to set set a speed record and he doesn't have to sail at night. And, and and that he that we can get to the owner of the Titanic and say you don't need, you know, to prove you're the fastest, uh, you know. So I, I I actually do think there has to be some effort to get to some sections of the elites, because as much as I want a transformation of the workers' movement and unions, um, you know, I don't see it happening fast enough. Well, if you knew any such individuals, you'd certainly solve your fundraising problem. <laughs> yeah, I'm not worried about that. I mean, I need a fundraise, but I don't care about that. I'm more interested in, do my kids have a place to grow up in? Uh, I mean, your site is a wonderful site, uh, and it's good. Uh, you're having these discussions because you have to describe, you know, what's wrong. And even if it's uh, it's pessimistic, you have to say, here's where the bottleneck is. You know, and you're, you're focusing on what the problem is and what the bottlenecks are. Uh, I want to say one thing about unionization. Uh, I talked a lot to uh, university professors, and uh, like at NYU, there was an argument the other day, and uh, one of the uh, faculty uh, argument. One of the professors said, they're, they're treating us like we're wage earners. And uh, my Marxist professor uh, said, but we are wage earners. Don't you get it? There's a, an interest. We should get unionized. And the other professor said, well, that's something that, you know, blue-collar workers do. So, I mean, there, there's... Uh, it, it's amazing how many people uh, I, I just do not think of themselves as uh, having the in, the broad interest that you and I have been talking about so many years. All right, let me just end with one thing, which I would suggest to everybody watching to read. Uh, it's by Frederick Engels, and it's called The Early History of Christianity. And it's a piece that most people have never seen. He wrote it right near the end of his life. And it's a lecture to the European left to get over their sectarianism. And his message is learn from the early Christians. And he says the early Christians were, was an anti-Roman Jewish movement, rebellion. But they realized that you can't fight the Romans just with Jews. You have to broaden out to all the slaves, to other oppressed classes. And to, but they're not, you can't 
ask them to be Jewish because it's too complicated. You need a Jewish mother. You have to go jump through rabbinical hoops. So they said, look it, dunk your head in some water, say you believe, and now join us in fighting the Romans. So it was very non-sectarian. And, and the Engels is saying if the, if the European left doesn't get over the sectarianism, they're going to lose. And, and they did. And the same thing, I think, is true in so many countries, but particularly the U.S. Uh, the left has to figure out how to build a broad front and, and get over so much of this competition. And, uh, and a lot of it's driven by economics, whether it's NGO-ish funding or branding on the Internet. There's so much fighting over secondary issues. And I, in my opinion, not nearly enough effort to figure out how to build a common front. Well, that metaphor with early Christianity is very appropriate uh, because it is how Christianity grew until uh, what was the, how did the Romans detooth it? They made Christianity the state religion. And once they made the state religion, you had Saint, uh, they backed St. Augustine against the reformers and Augustine really founded the Inquisition. And Augustine uh, ha uh, began having them fight against all of the social reformer gains and said, we're not going to change the world. Uh, it's okay for people to be rich. It's okay for uh, them to be users as long as they give the money to the poor, meaning us, the church, to give, uh, to uh, do everything. So uh, when they were co-opted by being made the state religion, that's what's happened to the left, to the social democrats. They were co-opted. They were made the, the official policy. And once they're the official policy, all of a sudden, uh, what happened to them is what happened to the Christian church after the fifth century. Well, Engels was not talking about learning from the Christians yeah. of the later, of Constantine and so on, when it yeah. became a state religion. He's talking about when Christianity had a revolutionary character. So let's leave it there. Because <laughs> otherwise you're going to come up with another thing that won't work. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Michael. It's good to be here. I like this. And thank you for joining us on the analysis.news. Don't forget the donate button, subscribe and to the email list, subscribe on YouTube, and, and all the buttons. Thanks for joining us.